Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of Biotech 2050 and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a future of work platform that's organizing and providing access to the world's life sciences expertise in order to help bring new therapies to patients faster. I'm very excited to welcome Chris Posner, president and CEO of Cara Therapeutics. Thanks so much for joining us today, Chris. Thanks, Rahul. Pleasure to be here. So, Chris, to kick us off, we'd love to learn a bit about your background, the arc of your career, and, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, I mean, thanks, Roll. So, you know, I'll take you back to the beginning, kind of, not, not from my birth, but, you know, really my background, which I think has given me a lot of what's really inside me to build my career. I think it would be important for the audience to hear. So, you know, I grew up in a military family. I actually grew up in West Point, New York, where my father was a physician and an army surgeon. So I spent most of my kind of formative years in West Point growing up in a military family. And I would tell you the one thing about that, and it's kind of led me in my whole life, it's around selfless service. And I think it fits this industry perfectly. And, and I'll go into more detail on that role as we go. I started my career actually as an economist. So I was an economist by training and did that for a couple of years decided I didn't want to go to get my PhD in economics. I, I wanted to kind of move more into a more broader business background. I went and got my MBA at Duke University, a terrific school, great experiences. And during that time, it goes to the selfless service that I accepted a fellowship with the Department of Defense. And they uh, ended up paying for my MBA program. And I gave them two years of service after I graduated. So, you know, I worked for the DOD for about two years and then really started my career in earnest in 1998 at Merck. Series of roles in finance, uh, market research, marketing, worked at Merck for a while. Great training, almost like an MBA program role, to be honest with you. Got a lot of different experiences and then um, left and went to a very small company at the time called Endo Pharmaceuticals. And Endo was a company in the early 2000s really focused in pain a singular focus in being the dominant company when it came to pain management. So I had the privilege of leaving Merck and going to Endo. And again, as a small company wearing multiple hats, you know, set up the market research group and it really got my first taste of P&L responsibility. And that really lit a fire under me in terms of what I really, really enjoy. I love making strategic choices, love making decisions and allocation decisions. And I knew I needed broader experiences. And that'll be kind of a running theme in my career. Like, how do I capture more and more experiences? Because I really had this vision of myself being a CEO one day and running a company. But I know this industry is so complicated that you need to get these broader experiences. And I left Endo and went to Wyeth. And, and somebody says, God, you went from small back to kind of big or midsize. But Wyeth offered me the opportunity to get international experience. And then also had the privilege to work on and actually lead the marketing group uh, for Embril, which was, you know, kind of a, one of those world famous biologics at the time. So that's the skills that Wyeth gave me, international marketing, as well as really starting to move from small molecules to biologics, larger molecules. So I did that for a while. Pfizer, you know, acquired Wyeth. And I, again, had the privilege of being picked to lead the JAK inhibitor program. So I was the lead on the asset team that took drug now called Zelljans, took it from phase three to approval. 
and really in charge of you know that entire kind of multidisciplinary team of taking it from start to finish and leading the commercialization effort. So very proud of that experience. Again, just a terrific experience working with top level clinicians to regulatory uh, folks, you know, to the legal folks, uh, as well as the commercial folks. I left Pfizer and went to Bristol Myers for a short stint, headed up their inflammation group. You know, in my tenure at BMS, a couple of us decided to leave BMS and do our own startup. So again, it's kind of a part of my career arc, so to speak, of taking some chances, taking some risks and you know, really expanding, you know, kind of my experience set. And a couple of us went out and uh, rented some office space outside of Princeton, New Jersey, rented two offices in a regent office space, uh, rent our route one, started a small company. And we ended up acquiring a product. And, you know, my task was building the commercial operations around that one product you know, fit for probably a further discussion at some point, you know, really building kind of a virtual commercialization group. Uh, and we were actually quite successful and then, you know, more so it was a hell of a lot of fun. So we did that and I was picked to head off to Leo Pharma, a private company to be the CEO. And remember, I, I mentioned to you earlier that that was a, a, an aspiration of mine. That was an ambition I had. And Leo Pharma gave me that opportunity to become the CEO of the U.S. operations. And Leo was a medical dermatology company. And my task was to really help build that company in the U.S. and also prepare for the launch of their recently approved biologic for the treatment of atopic dermatitis. So again, a terrific opportunity to really get that broad CEO managerial experiences and really set me up nicely for kind of the current role I'm in. You know, at Leo, I, I was also selected to be the, on the board of directors at Cara. And that takes me to kind of where I am now. I was on the board for a couple of years. And just last November, we uh, made the transition from the founder CEO to myself. And I've been on the helm now at Care Therapeutics for about nine months. And it's been, again, a terrific experience in, in my short tenure running a public biotech company. I would just say to kind of conclude, you know, I think when you look at my career, it's full of different experiences. I would say the other underlying theme is around taking some risks. And taking some risks where I just got off the phone with my um, son-in-law and said, he's taking a new job. He said, God, I feel really uncomfortable. I don't know if I could do this. This is a big kind of promotion. And I said, that's the best time to take a job. And I felt uncomfortable a lot in my career, taking on different experiences. And it wasn't a linear trend north. I mean, I took some ups and downs, but the trend line was always at least pointing north. <laughs> so it's been a terrific 24-year career in this industry. And, you know, I feel like in this position now, I have the experience set the perspectives uh, to make good decisions to lead this company forward. Great, Chris. Thank you for sharing that background and quite a diversity of background. So, so lots to unpack there. I'm curious, as you reflect on your time in big pharma and then transitioning to you know high growth biotechs like Leo and Cara, what are some of the learnings from your experience in big pharma that have translated well to your current environment? And then the opposite point, which is, what are areas where you think like, hey, you, you know, the first time you were CEO, that these are things that I needed to learn or evolve in terms of my own thinking of how to approach things? That's a great question. So, you know, Big Pharma, I mentioned earlier when I talked about the arc of my career, Big Pharma to me was like another MBA program in a way. It gave me some diversity in terms of 
you know, problems that we needed to solve, different therapeutic areas, also different leaders that I worked under, right? And small companies, you don't tend to get that, right? It's very myopic. You're more focused on a goal. So, you know, there's a lot to be said in earlier in my career of seeing kind of what good looks like, seeing what I probably don't want to aspire to or kind of entertain as I move forward. So that, that was really important. But I would tell you the thing that's translated well for me from Big Pharma was rigor, analytic approaches to problem solving. You know, it's really helped me in small companies. I always say this, Raul, you have to be right. When you're wrong, it really causes some very serious problems. So I, I do find, you know, not everything's gone right, trust me, but I do find that rigorous approach to decision making, you know, getting the analytics right and being confident that you have the fact base in place to make the decision has really translated very well for me. I think the thing that, you know, I've tried to change as I've gone from big to small is speed. You know, I think sometimes you get a little bogged down in big pharma a little too much paralysis by analysis sometimes, a lot of committees, right? And what I've tried to do as I've kind of moved into small pharma, mid-sized pharma, is speed of decision-making. And that comes with confidence, that comes with good rigor in terms of your decision-making process. So those are the kind of the two areas I would say, you know, I've tried to do coming from big to small. I've hopped back to big, you know, and what I've found going from small endo back to Pfizer Wyatt role is that I've taken some of those skills I learned there around speed and inspired my team to be accountable and be able to make decisions. So I've tried to kind of create some ecosystems, even in big pharma that adhere to those principles. Great. I'm, I'm glad you brought up the point of structured analytical decision-making, but it being adjusted based on the size of the company yeah, right. that oftentimes we see folks that haven't been able to make that transition. And the company then as a result is stuck in this paralysis by analysis that you yeah. mentioned. So it's a great point. In terms of then transitioning to becoming a board member, talk to us a little bit about that evolution yeah. and how you needed to adjust going from CEO to then being a board member. I, I will tell you, that was one of my biggest personal challenges. Um, I'm an operator. I love being in the details. I love you know getting in the field and, and really on the tactics as well, because at the end of the day, it's all about execution. And my challenge of joining my first board, and it was at Kara in 2018, was trying to, I call it parachute back up and allow the management team to operate and try to figure out where as a board member, I could add value to that management team. That was a struggle for me initially because I wanted to just jump right in, you know, two feet in. So I think that was my biggest challenge. And, you know, I had a really good mentor who's now the chairman of our board. He was a really good mentor when I joined the board in 2018. He, he remains a very you know important mentor for me. But he gave me a lot of news on multiple boards. So he gave me a lot of good lessons. It's not to say I didn't fall into that trap of being an operator. I did. But I'm a fairly humble guy. And I was able to kind of take some feedback and parachute back up. And I think I added a lot of value moving into throughout my tenure on the board. And obviously, that parlayed into the board having confidence in me you know, to kind of take the role of CEO. Great. And Chris, you know, we've been seeing quite a bit of diversity and backgrounds of folks that are now CEOs in, in biotech. 
And perhaps for folks that are listening now that have a background that's similar to you, when you were back at Wyeth and BMS, talk a little bit about how that transition from being on the sales and marketing and commercial side has been for you now being at a high growth biotech that has a bunch of different assets in the clinic, perhaps are years away from, from commercialization as well. And what folks can look out for when they have a background similar to you when they're stepping into this sort of seat? Again, a, a very insightful question. I was a pure marketeer in the mid-2000s. I was an excellent marketeer. Ran brands, ran portfolios. I, I think my experience, though, as I moved into Pfizer and headed up the Jack program, and really, you know, got to lead and work closely with the clinical team. The regulatory team taught me a heck of a lot. I don't know if I'd be in this position without that experience, to be quite frank. But what I will tell you and what I would tell the audience is that moving into a CEO role from a kind of a more of a commercialization function, you know, and we're an R&D engine, Akara. That's what we are. And we're really good at it. It's still about problem solving and making resource you know, allocation decisions, making strategic choices and focus and execution. Those are kind of common themes. I don't care what function you're in. So what I've tried to do at CARA and what I would challenge everybody to do is it's all about focus and it's all about execution and having, I would say, very close monitoring on critical metrics. So I'm a big, you know, maybe that's my economics background role, but end of the day, I'm a, I'm a very, you know, big proponent of monitoring, measuring, your leading, lagging KPIs, key performance indicators. I don't care if it's a product in line that you're marketing or a phase three development program and being able to have some dynamic conversations about what you need to change, what you need to improve. And I hope what I'm bringing at CARE is that discipline to execution. We got to meet our commitments. That's what the investment community wants, right? Meet our commitments and monitor, make the changes you need to be successful. So I think to me, the biggest theme is execution and focus. Thanks, Chris. And thanks for indulging with me with uh, all those questions about your background. So before we get into some of the exciting science at Care Therapeutics, if you don't mind, educate us on the patient population that you folks are targeting. There's not a lot of companies that focus on pruritus. So I'd love to hear it from you in terms of landscape assessment right now and the unmet need. It's who we are as a company. You know, we're building this kind of unique, differentiated company at CARA that is singularly focused right now on chronic pruritus and, and bringing forward treatments for chronic pruritus. So, you know, what we're looking at in terms of pruritus, you know, Raul, if you'll indulge me a little, I would kind of paint a picture of a patient because, you know, I, I think the thing that's shocking to people, this is a real medical condition, right? I'd say it's not like itching that all of us have, right? You itch, I itch, mosquito bite, you dig in and you itch. What we're focused on in chronic pruritus is really an itch that's inside you, if that makes sense. It's, it's where you can't scratch it. And a lot of patients actually describe it like bugs crawling under your skin. And, you know, I think the best way I could do this is, is kind of put a picture on a patient. Call, let's call her Sarah. You know, where we're focused now is she's been on dialysis, right? Where we have a product approved in chronic kidney disease for adults in dialysis. So she's a dialysis patient. She's had this chronic kidney failure for around 12 years. She's been on dialysis for 10, 10 plus years. She's relatively okay, right? Despite the kidney failure. And this pruritus has really put poor Sarah over the edge. 
And, you know, this itch is not on top, it's underneath her. And, you know, it makes her skin bleed from scratching. Your skin bleed from scratching, but you can't stop it. And this is really problematic because there's a lot of data out there to suggest that obviously when you scratch and your skin bleeds, infection rates go up. And more so, more, more kind of, I think, real to us is that the quality of life you know, her marriage, her well-being. I mean, it's all impacted. Sleep's impacted. You know, she struggles to fall asleep, et cetera. And she's incredibly self-conscious, right, of going out to restaurants and having to go into the bathroom to take off her shoes to itch. So this is who we're focused on, right? And this is our mission at CARA, quite frankly. I talked earlier about focus. So our mission at CARA is entirely devoted to helping patients like Sarah. You're talking a patient population in dialysis for all, yes, about landscape. You're looking at roughly 500,000 patients in the United States that are undergoing dialysis. We estimate roughly 200,000 of them would be a candidate for a product like ours called Corsuva Injection that we recently got approved uh, last August. And I'm curious, you know, in a space where perhaps most folks in biotech are not familiar with, let's say, CKD or or puritis, but it is so, so important in our space for the team that is working on developing new therapeutics to understand the patient journey. I'm curious if there's any insights or lessons learned in terms of how do you get the team to really understand that patient population that's worked well for you? Yeah, it wasn't by serendipity, right? We focused on this. I mean, and I would tell you, you know, the lifeblood of our company, probably any biotech, but our company, what I tell the team over and over again, it's science, innovation, and execution. And so when you look at CKD and you look at chronic pruritus associated with chronic kidney disease patients, you know, the unmet need is significant. I just took you through a picture of, of Sarah. I think the other part of that unmet need is there are no FDA-approved treatments for Sarah. So what is the standard of care? Well, they're antihistamines, probably topical steroids. Again, both not approved, but used with some degree of effectiveness, by and large, not terribly effective. So again, science and innovation. I mean, we, you know, biology is kind of caught up in chronic paritis in a way. And we were able to tap into that kind of biology now and bring to the market a drug we call Corsuva, uh, that's a uh, peripheral kappa opioid agonist that really allows a patient like Sarah now to have a drug to help her. And that's what's critical. Wonderful, Chris. So with, with that background now on the on the patient population, walk us through the exciting underlying tech and science at Care Therapeutics and, and what your team's working on now. Again, you know, it starts with focus. So we're focused on chronic paritis and we lead with our product uh, called Corsuva Injection, which is, you know, indicated for moderate severe paritis in patients undergoing dialysis. So we lead with that product. That's approved. It got approved last August. We have a commercial partner in B4 Pharmaceuticals or B4 Limited that is actually executing the launch in the U.S. We're quite thrilled with that. Really just in earnest started launching the product in April this year. But we also now have a platform and a product in the molecule called Diphelicaflin, where now we have an oral formulation of this injection. And the oral formulation, we have four clinical programs underway. We have two phase three programs, one in chronic kidney disease, again, but it's in patients that aren't on dialysis yet. 
we have the other program in a very prevalent uh, dermatologic condition where chronic pruritus is implicated, and that's an atopic dermatitis, which we believe we have a, a terrific opportunity there. So those are two phase three programs that just initiated in the first quarter of this year. We also have two phase two programs underway. One just read out last week, Roel, and that's in Notalgia Parasitica. It's, again, a dermatologic disease. It's a neuropathic itch. Again, no approved treatments. And we demonstrated positive top-line data. We announced that last week, so we're quite excited about next steps there. And then we have another program underway in phase two in uh, chronic liver disease called primary biliary cholangitis, where itch is a significant manifestation of that disease. And we expect to have top-line data read out in the second half of this year and in the latter part of this year. So, you know, we have this platform and a product, you know, opportunity that we're actually executing on for a small company to have an approved product that's now launched with V4 and to have a robust pipeline, no small fee. And, you know, I always kind of would end that conversation on our pipeline with people. I mean, we, we mentioned before we have an R&D engine. This is the same team that's taking our oral platform through the clinic, same team that brought Corsuva injection over the finish line as the first FDA-approved drug in the treatment of pruritus associated with patients undergoing dialysis. So quite excited about kind of both the near-term and long-term growth projections for care therapeutics. Yeah, seems certainly like an exciting time and, and lots of momentum. Congrats on the recent positive top-line yeah. data. I'm curious, over the last you know two years, we've all had to adapt quite a bit in terms of culture, how we make sure that we all you know are rowing in the same direction when we're on a particular team. And clearly, you all have been quite productive over the last year or so. What have you learned about managing teams in this new COVID environment? Mm-hmm. And how are you looking at thinking about remote work, but yet the importance of FaceTime with folks? Well, I mean, I hope it's coming through. I'm a culture guy. I'm a people guy. And it has been a 24-year journey of learning how to be a really good leader. I'm still learning and really how to build a culture. And I'm still doing that. I'm still learning every day. I will tell you that Kara, you know, our motto, I, I call it our drumbeat. Maybe that's back to my military term. I like to tell the team, I'm not kind of the Walmart quote guy on the wall, these motivational quotes. I mean, our drumbeat, our soul, we call it one team, one mission. I think that fits beautifully, especially in a biotech environment. We're kind of all in this together. You know, we all wear multiple hats. We win, we all win, we lose, we all lose, right? And actually, Kara, you know, role is kind of interesting. Kara in Gaelic, it means friendship. And that's what I try to create at the company, friendship. And it sounds really odd, right? We say business isn't personal, et cetera. Business is incredibly personal, incredibly. Yeah, I spend most of my waking day on this business, probably even sleeping day in this business, but it's incredibly personal. And I'm a big believer in creating friends in a company. And people sometimes wince at that when I say that, but I say, you know, when you create friends in a company, well, friends could tell each other everything. And I believe the biggest unlock of any company is trust. I really do. I think when you're able to sit down and have an honest conversation, good or bad, and you know that other person has your back and is telling you how a friendship in order to get better, boy, what an unlock for a company. So our company is grounded in this drumbeat of one team, one mission. It's grounded in this idea of relationships and trust. You talked about COVID. And I always said, you know, trust can't be surged during a crisis. 
And I was at Leo at the time. And I had built, I believe, a very good culture with my leadership team and the folks below. And COVID came and we were able to really pivot immediately. I had a less than 3% attrition rate. So I didn't lose many people. I kept everybody pretty much. And we even dealt with a CRL at the time. And I still, my, my retention rate was under 5%. I think people trusted each other. They trusted what I was saying. We over-communicated with probably a lot of companies did. And we were able to really have honest conversations of how to grow the business with never losing sight during COVID that people were number one. And I, I said it day one of COVID, I think it was March of 2020 or whenever it happened. And I, I remember saying my number one priority is people's safety, period. I was true to that every step of the way. I never wavered from that. So I kept the company, I think, in really good standing. And I moved here to Kara. You know, we're focused on trust. We're focused on building personal relationships and focused on building friendships, which I think, again, allow a company like us to really prosper, quite frankly. So, you know, I also mentioned before building a culture, building trust in COVID or even in these times now with more remote work is a challenge. I, I wouldn't lie to you. It's not easy. I thought it was a lot easier. We're in the office five days a week much easier. Here, we're in the office a couple of days a week, more remote employees, clearly, which I really support. But I think you have to be much more intentional now about how you want to build a culture. It still comes down to bringing on board the right people that really buy in, that really want to take a care of therapeutics from a $500 million market cap to a $2 billion, which is in our line of sight, quite frankly, I believe. So, you know, I've really made it a point over these last nine months to host multiple town halls, you know, do coffees with Chris's and really getting people to know me and be a little bit vulnerable as well at the same time. You know, I've stepped in some quicksand here already, Carol, with some folks, right? And, you know, here's this guy coming in. This company has been around for a little while. Is he going to change everything? What processes are you going to put in place? And, you know, it, it's kind of that that feeling out process. But I think one thing they're getting to know with me is that the honesty, the empathy, and what I always say, bring a little humanity back to the company, right? I mean, we're doing this with a North Star of helping these patients. And I mentioned, Sarah, I mean, if you don't lose sight of that, I think great things happen. Yeah, I certainly agree with a lot of that, Chris. And I think leaders across biotech and all industries have had to rethink how they engage with their teams. I think something like 20% of biotech professionals over the last year switched jobs. So you know, we're quite remarkable that you yeah. and your teams have been able to stay together and certainly a testament to the culture that you're building over there. And Raul, if I, if I just interject, I mean, one of the things that I think is a leader, and I think it's great for the audience, I mean, I really take it a personal responsibility to make this the last job or last company you work for. Reality, that's tough, but I take that as a personal responsibility to myself. How do I make this the best environment to have you be the most successful? And that my simple model in life has always been, I can't wait for Monday, where you're inspired Sunday night to get up and go to the office. That's on me, I believe, in my leadership team. And if we're not creating that environment, that's where I believe people leave. So I make it my personal commitment to make sure that this is the last company they work for. Yeah, great. So Chris, switching gears a bit now, as we think about the next, let's say, decade to two decades in biotech, what are some areas where you think there's opportunities and you also are thinking about challenges ahead for us as an industry or for other leaders across the sector? 
Yeah, it's a phenomenal question. I mean, you know, it's something uh, I do think a lot about being in the industry for 24 years. And my son just going to turn 27. He's in the industry, believe it or not, as well. So I think about him and think about what this is going to be like for him over the next 25 years. I think one thing doesn't change is that patients need and deserve innovative therapies. I'm always inspired with the scientists and what's going on in this industry. I don't think that'll ever change. You know, I would say this, you know, you know, kind of in this vibrant sort of industry that we're in, you know, it's hard to say that there's one thing that's happening or not happening that should be happening. I, it's hard for me to kind of think that way because I would say human biology is so darn complex. So it's hard to kind of put my finger on one thing that if you allow me, Roy, I, I'd say there's a couple things. I'd say there's three things in my mind that, that I think are really important and, and potentially pose challenges moving forward. And, and the first one, and I talk a lot about focus, and I see too many companies lose focus. And I call it get schizophrenic and start grabbing on different things, be it pressure from you know the investment community, the boards or whatever, whatever the reason. And there's a lot of distractions you know, for companies and for leaders. I deal with them too. And my belief is always to keep focus on you know three, four strategic priorities be laser focused on that execution. And that, that's a common theme I talked to you about already. And I, I think when you don't lose sight of those and, and when you kind of stay on that, I think it really drives the company forward. And everybody in our company at Cara knows what our three strategic priorities are. And I couldn't say that maybe before, but they know it. And they know if they're not focused on one of those three priorities, they shouldn't be doing it. So that's one focus. I, I would say second, you know, make sure that the long-term is not drowned out by near-term thinking. And again, we, we live in a biotech world. I'm running a public company. Certainly there's near-term catalysts and there's opportunities and, and that can dominate, you know, kind of the conversation clearly as you probably know, Roel. But, you know, I think our long-term commitments and efforts are the things that really make a difference. Talked about our pipeline. I look at our, our oral platform that we have with Dyfella Kaplan and the clinical programs we have going on. We cannot lose sight of that. Clearly, we have a launch with a partner that, that's going to be exciting. I'm looking forward to that, but can't lose sight of that long-term potential that could impact millions of patients as we you know, hopefully get these products to and through the clinic. So, you know, for us at CARE, I would tell you, you know, really category defining R&D is the path for us for sustainable value. And that's my job. That's our job at CARE. And, and I would say, I mentioned, you know, leading with science. You know, yeah, you mentioned I'm a commercial guy by heart, but end of the day, you know, science is what drives this industry. So, you know, we want to be a leader and being a leader in this industry requires us to be a leader in science. So we're going to continually focus on innovation. We're also going to focus on operational innovation. That's where I could really add value as well. Thinking about ways to do things differently, more efficiently, quicker. So again, that focus on innovation, I think, is going to be paramount you know, moving forward. So that's how I think about the industry in the next 25, 30 years or so, you know, like don't lose sight of what's really important to driving long-term value. You know, there's a lot of noise and a lot of near-term things that'll come at you. Don't lose sight of that sustainable value proposition that you have. Focus, 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 focus. Too many things become important and then you get schizophrenic. One of my old bosses, Raul, used to say, don't spread mediocrity too thin. So I kind of always think about that. I like that. 
on the point of focus and learning, I'm curious if you were to look back at your career and think about the early days of Chris stepping into biotech. What's one piece of advice you would want to provide your younger self, knowing all that you know now? Wow, that's a that's a great interview question. I'm going to tell you the first thing that comes to mind: empathy. I think in my career, and you know, again, I'm just going to point to myself. You know, I had this ambition to be the CEO of a company one day of a biotech, and you know, you're running fast forward, and sometimes you think you're the smartest guy in the room. You know, because some people maybe told you that. You know, as I advanced in my career, I really saw had some good mentors, some good leaders that I modeled, and I saw how they listened. And I saw how they listen without waiting for their turn to speak. Sorry for that cliche. And so I, I think this word empathy, it became clear to me, you know, even during the pandemic of people are waking up in the morning wanting to do the right thing. I don't know of anybody getting up in the morning wanting to do the wrong thing. They're not. So I, I've actually taken a bit better stance now professionally, but being more empathetic. You don't know what people are going through in their personal life. And they're trying hard. And how can you help support them? I could take that lesson personally as well. I got to be here with my kids and stuff, right? It's a good lesson to learn. But I would say, you know, my younger self, I would have said, hey, listen a bit more early on. Listen, I'd be a little bit more empathetic to people. They're all trying to do the right thing. We're all trying to help patients. That's why we joined the industry. Well, Chris, thanks so much for joining us today, for sharing, I'm sure, what is a little bit of everything that you have learned in your career and for educating us on the unmet need in Doritis and the exciting work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at, at Care Therapeutics. Yeah, thank you, Roll. I know you're interviewing me, but I would tell you, I got 100 people back in Stanford, Connecticut, and they're all around the country that it is the best team uh, I've had the privilege to work with. They're, they're amazing and fully dedicated to making this happen. So yeah, I appreciate them. And it's great to be a spokesman for 100 people. Wonderful. Great. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050pod. Again, that's Biotech2050pod. Until next time.